In John's Gospel, Jesus is a worker of signs. He, um, he works seven signs throughout John's Gospel, a number that's very important in, in Jewish thought and life. The very first one is turning water into wine. The very last one is raising Lazarus from the dead. And in between there, he's, there are other signs that are, are of similar nature, of healing and um, of, of doing this, uh, this powerful works of God. And John says, at, towards the end of his gospel, that he has recorded these signs in order that we might believe in the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. Before I read this passage from John 10, this passage of, of the Good Shepherd, the, the, the chapter that immediately precedes it is Jesus working his sixth sign, the penultimate one, the one just before raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, and it is healing a man who was born blind. John has shown us throughout the course of this uh, 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 gospel up to this point that what Jesus has managed to do is to bifurcate the culture of his day between following him, this uh, spirituality that he offers, this this uh, relationship with God as Father, from that which was the, the, the popular uh, piety of the day, which was called uh, Pharisaism, or the, the, the piety of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were these people who were very strict traditionalist um, Jews. They, uh, they were, were very careful about many things, and they were very uh, upset with Jesus because he had the audacity to challenge their traditions and venerations. He did some things like he was friends with um, Samaritans. He made uh, friendships with a Samaritan woman. This was a, a, a double difficulty because, first of all, that he would speak to a woman in public was one thing. And to speak to a Samaritan woman was a sort of a, a twice as bad because Samaritans were hated by the religious Jews of the day. He healed people and he would do it on the Sabbath when they viewed that as being a, a, an act of a violation of the law. But the thing that Jesus did all the time that really infuriated the Pharisees was that he claimed to be on equal footing with God. Listen to what John says in chapter 5. This was why the Jews were seeking to kill him all the more. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is what the big problem was, is that Jesus was claiming divinity. And he's working all these signs and establishing more and more this claim. The angrier that the Pharisees get at Jesus, though, the more he seems to double down on the behavior. And many people see him then and begin to believe in him. And so there's this, this great sense of, of following Jesus, of, of believing in him, of people who are, who are saying, I think he's the one, he's the Messiah. And, of course, the more entrenched his opponents became. And they, they tried to scandalize him. At one point, they remind him of his illegitimacy, of the scandalous nature of his birth. Perhaps his mother was um, not wed when uh, she conceived him. And then they point out their legitimacy. We are legitimate heirs of Abraham. What does Jesus say to this challenge? He says to them, before Abraham was, I am. He claimed to exist before Abraham existed 2,000 years before that. How could that be possible? And what's more, to use this phrase, I am is the very name of God in the Old Testament. Again, he's doing the same thing, claiming equality with God. When people are out to get you and they're out to kill you, 
<laughs> you know, this might be a time to dial down the rhetoric. You know, uh, my mother used to say, like, make yourself scarce. Um, she would say this whenever we were inside and needed to be going out. Make your, get away, lay low, you know. Don't draw a lot of attention to yourself. This is not at all what Jesus seems to do in John's gospel. He seems to poke the bear at a time when the bear should be left alone. He's walking by this man who was born blind, and he bends down, and, and he makes this little salve out of his own spit and mud, and he puts it on the man's eyes. He doesn't need to do this. In previous chapters, he's healed people at a distance simply by saying the word. Why would he do this? Well, everybody would be able to see it, wouldn't they? And he sends the man to a pool, this pool of Siloam. He says, go wash in this pool, another public display. And the man does it, and he's healed. And as you guessed it, it occurs on the Sabbath. This just exacerbates the controversy. Is Jesus a man of God, or is he evil? This is the question that that the Pharisees are trying to force, and that Jesus is trying to force. And and Jesus is saying that he is a man of God, in fact, on equal footing with God. And the Pharisees are saying that Jesus is a maniac and worse. That he cast out demons by the head of demons. He is the devil himself. John wants you and I to see this dilemma. He wants you and I to see this this question about Jesus' identity. Is Jesus, this peasant preacher healer, is he really the son of God? Or is he what the religious establishment says he is? A devil. Who would you follow? The religious establishment or Jesus? And that's the question that John puts in front of us and he put in front of the people of the day. Jesus, to help us understand what his actions are like, gives us a metaphor. I am the gate, he says in this passage. The very next verse in chapter uh, 10, verse 11, that's not in our reading, I am the good shepherd. I think these both work together. The gate and the shepherd are the same. The shepherd used to lie in the gate of the pen in order to protect the sheep as they came through. So to say, I am the gate, is I'm the shepherd who lies down in the gate. I'm the good shepherd. This is Jesus' claim. And he says there are really two types of sheep handlers. (laughs) There are shepherds who care for the sheep, and there are thieves who want to exploit the sheep for their own use. Jesus says, I speak, and my sheep know my voice. If sheep could think in terms of cognitive thought, it would go something like this. Oh, this is the fellow who brings me food, you know. Uh, this is the fellow who leads me to water when I'm thirsty. Uh, he's the guy who fought the wolf and scared off the bear. Uh, this is the one I trust. I have this big black lab, Lucy. Lucy knows my voice. She is not as timid as a sheep. She would happily take food from you as she does for me. Um, but she knows my voice. I, all I have to do is speak and she comes running. She obeys my commands because she thinks there's a meal in it, you know. Um, but she knows me. If I'm watching television, she'll come up and she lays her head in my lap, you know, because she knows I can't resist scratching her behind the ear. Or she'll show up with a big toy in her mouth, you know, because play tug of war with me or I'll play fetch, you know, whatever you want to do. And if you have a dog or a cat or a hamster, perhaps, I don't know, if you have a pet, they know you, right? They know your voice. This, this metaphor is not hard to catch. The sheep know the voice. The sheep are the people, the people who are following Jesus. And the shepherd cares for them and keeps them safe. 
But not so with the thief. The thief doesn't care for the sheep. The thief comes to steal. It comes to to take, to exploit the sheep. And Jesus is making a metaphor that there are two types of spiritual leadership in the world. There are those who care for the sheep and there are those who try to exploit them. Remember the context. We have Pharisaic religion versus the spirituality of Jesus. Jesus is the one who cares, who restores. The Pharisees are the ones who are arbiters of rules. Did you keep the rule properly? Or are you condemned because you failed to keep the rule? Remember in chapter 8, there's a story. This woman who's caught in the act of adultery. That's what John says. Presumably he means she's very caught in the very bed with another man. And they bring her to Jesus. The Pharisees bring her to Jesus. And they remind him of the penalty for breaking this law. Stoning. That she's to be stoned to death. And what does Jesus say? He says, the one of you who has no sin gets to cast the first stone. And one by one, they all walk away because they know none of them can live up to that qualification. And then he asks the woman a question. Is there none to condemn you? And she says, no, none. And what does he say? Then neither do I condemn you. Go your way. Sin no more. The one who, a man comes to him and says, my son is, 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 is ill and is near death. And he says, go, your son is made well. The man who's been crippled for 38 years, he heals. These are signs in John's gospel that Jesus sees somebody in need and he cares for them. Whereas the Pharisees see someone who has violated the law and they condemn them. Which sort of, of, goodness do you want? Which sort of following God you think is really the, the, the way that the Lord intended? Which path is it? The, um, the path that, that doesn't condemn and embraces and cares or the one that only is concerned about religious conformity to certain rules? The thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. See, I think there are couple options in Jesus' world, basically Pharisaic Judaism or the spirituality of Jesus. That's an oversimplification of the fact. If you want to talk to me about the Essenes or the Sadducees or anything else, okay, I'll have that. But this is the basic way for people. You either keep rules or you have a dynamic relationship with God. These are the two options. But Jesus is a newcomer to the, to the scene. For a long time, Pharisaic Judaism was the option, this model of piety. Surely these people who keep all these rules must be holy, right? Why else would they do it? Surely they must be pleasing to God, right? Uh, All the self-denial must be what God wants, right? And this mentality does not not die with the advent of Christianity. Um, There's been Pharisaic uh, uh, piety throughout the history of the church. I was thinking about the medieval Christians. They had a real sense of, of you know, the no-pain, no-gain school of spirituality. They would wear shirts made out of hair underneath their clothes, okay, because it would be itchy and it would irritate. What's worse is it would get infected with lice and other kinds of parasites. And that they believed that this pleased God because they walked around in pain all the time for their, their many mortal sins. So they, the, the pain that they no one could see but God alone would, would be pleasing to him. As you go through the history of church, you can find many other examples of Pharisaic religion, um, prohibitions about 
see no evil, do no evil, take whatever, you know, speak no. That this is, uh, don't touch. I'm holier because of the prohibitions that I keep. And it's evolved in many ways. But I don't think this is the real struggle that we have in 21st century middle class America. There are people who still struggle with Pharisaic religion, but I don't think this is the struggle that we have. I think the struggle that we have is not between libertarian Christianity and Pharisaic Christianity, but between a God-centered life and a humanistic-centered one. A life that is centered on God and pursuing a relationship with God, and one that is pursuant on our own well-being. And I think it's a difference between following the Good Shepherd and following a secular approach. In secularism, if there is a God, and there could be, I don't think all secularists are, are, are atheists, but there's a, 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 um, a decision that all that really matters is that you be nice. Um, the millennials have this uh, basic uh, uh, axiom that goes like this, just don't be a jerk. Um, sometimes it's a little saltier than that. You, maybe you can figure it out in your head. Um, just don't be a jerk. That's, that's a good start. I think that's a good start for some people. But is that really life? Is that really wholeness? Is that really an abundant life? Just don't be a jerk. Because following Jesus is more than just not being a jerk. I mean, yes, the golden rule is part of it. But if you read John's gospel, what you see is is John begins with these three words in his gospel. John 1.1, in the beginning. You don't even have to have a real developed familiarity with Scripture to hear an echo there, right? This is Genesis 1-1, which, by the way, in case you don't know, begins in the beginning. What John is doing is he's taking us back to God's purpose. That he wants us, that the coming of Jesus is about restoring the created order, about making us part of the way that God intended us to be in the beginning, to be true humans. To open our eyes and help us to see what the intention was. That following Jesus is following the hope of the creator God. I think secularism leads to one of two options. And these were very popular options in the first century. They are either Epicureanism, which is that life really is only about pleasure. So what we need to do is to you know, maximize pleasure and minimize pain. And there you have the meaning of life. Or Stoicism which is that that knowledge is the highest good. You can see both of these at work in our secular society today. But I'll tell you, we are the most educated society the world has ever seen. Ever. And in the last century, we had two world wars. We had the invention of nuclear weapons. And right now, we're in a a worldwide struggle with all sorts of, of evil. Has all of our education done anything to minimize the evil in the world? No. And so whether it's Epicureanism or Stoicism, we end up in in nihilism. That there's no meaning to life and that it it has nothing to give us. That is not what following Jesus is. The following Jesus is a, is a, a trajectory in a different direction. It has an end that, that God is going to restore all of creation. There's a, a story that... Um, I remember about this fellow, his name was uh, Pepe Rodriguez, and um, he was sort of like the most famous bank robber in Texas, like in the, in the middle of the 19th century. And, and what Pepe did is he lived in, in Mexico, 
And so he would steal across the border at night, and he would rob these uh, banks in these Texas border towns, and then he would go back to Mexico where the rangers weren't uh, you know, able to come and get him. And he would do this for a long time, and eventually the rangers had had it. You know, they decided they were going to figure out where he was. They, 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 they knew the bar where he was holed up, and, and they were going to go there, and they did. They launched a raid in the daytime, surrounded the bar, and caught him in there. And there's Pepe all relaxed, drinking, you know, and uh, not worried about anything. But the rangers surrounded the building, and, and they're inside, and they've got him at gunpoint. And the head ranger points the gun at Pepe and says, Tell me where you stored all the money, or I'm going to shoot you where you stand. Pepe looked at him. He didn't say a thing. He was obviously stunned, but he didn't say anything. So the ranger repeated his demand. Tell me where you've stored the money, or I'm going to shoot you where you stand. Still, nobody said a word. And then the bartender says, Ah, oh, Pepe, he knows speak English. Um, you speak Spanish. And the, the ranger says, Well, I don't speak Spanish. And he looks around. None of the other rangers speak Spanish. And so the ranger said, Well, it's obvious that you know both languages. You interpret. Tell him. Tell us where the money is, or I'll shoot you where it stands. So faithfully, the bartender looks at Pepe and says, okay, you want to know where you've stored the money? Tell him, or they're going to shoot you where you stand. Pepe recognizes it. His eyes get real big, and he's terrified. He says, tell him to go to the city well. Handle, from the handle of the well, count down three bricks. Pull that brick out. There's a big cavern in there. Almost all the money is in there. And the bartender looks at the ranger, and he says, that Pepe, he's a very brave man. <laughs> He says, you're all a bunch of pigs. He'd rather die than tell you where the money's hidden. (laughs) We live in a world with some options about who you should trust. It's important to know who you trust. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.